Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsell. Now you're going to notice the lack of a second voice on this podcast, as Professor Simon Carley is busy. Too busy for me, it seems, and too busy for you. But that's what happens when you are a professor of emergency medicine and you have a lot on your plate. And we didn't want you to miss out on November. And it's almost, well, the festive season. And so I thought, well, let's give it a crack on my own, see how I can do. Now, this is a bit of an issue because regular listeners to the podcast will realise that Simon does, if not all, at least most of the heavy lifting when it comes to describing the blog posts and what's been in them. Not least because he writes an awful lot of them. Anyway, I've done my best. I will try and use the brain that I have to interpret some of the blog posts we've had from November and hopefully bring you a little bit of my perspective about what's been going on. So where to start? Well, let's start with Simon and his blog post about a conference talk he did in Lisbon at the European Society of Emergency Medicine, where he actually went in person, as we discussed last month. And this is about narrative storytelling in education and teaching. Now, I think the way that we teach and train our doctors and ourselves has massively changed over the last few years, not least because of, well, I suppose it started with TED Talks. And then from there, we had the SMAC conference and there was just a little bit more thought going into what we did to present our talks, present our ideas, present our themes. And I think generally, I believe this has been a really, really good thing. We've changed the way that we present. We've no longer just put up bullet points and slides, which frankly... We've got to remember our learners are all educated people. They could go and look most of this stuff up in a book if they really wanted to. What we have to try and do as teachers and lecturers is put that into context to give it a human perspective, to try and give people a a little few hooks to hang those stories on so that when they're in that situation themselves in that environment, they're able to remember back to the story perhaps they were told in order to aid their learning. There's a full blog post that Simon's put up, which I really recommend you read. And it's all about how we can use these stories. Now, this shouldn't be a fake idea, should it? This shouldn't be crowbarred in. And let's be fair, some of the TED Talks I've seen, they've just become almost a bit on the other side of the Starling curve of lectures, haven't they? They've gone too far. We need a nice middle ground. And some people do want facts as part of their education, and we can still give them. But have a think about how you can put your talks into context. How if you're doing a talk about, let's say, I don't know, high sensitivity troponin, you can put the learner into that idea where they're going to be standing there thinking, do I need this test? If I need this test, why am I doing it? And if they think back to the story that they were told, it's likely that that's going to give them some memories that they'll be able to use as part of their knowledge base to decide whether that test is the one that they need. So narrative storytelling, we've still a long way to go, I think, in our teaching and training and our education. There's still an awful lot of dense, data-heavy slides that I see as part of talks, both at undergraduate and postgraduate level. But I truly believe as doctors, we are learning. We are learning from those in the teaching profession. We're learning from those who've been trailblazers in this. And we need to keep thinking about how we do it. We can't just turn up anymore and say, oh, can I borrow your slides? There's got to be more to it. Now, later in the month, Dan Horner, Professor of Emergency Medicine up in Manchester, who's really an expert in venous thromboembolism, and you'll have heard him talk about that on the podcast before and read his blog posts, delves into the world of airway management in the emergency department. This is clearly tiger country, and he should be congratulated for dipping his toe into this, well, let's say piranha-infested waters. Not least as this was a transcript for a talk he gave at the Difficult Airway Society. So he was really the... uh, Well, what is he? Rose amongst thorns? I'm not sure. But 
we need to think about how we manage airways in the emergency department. And there are lots of parallels between the ED and the intensive care unit. Now, Dan goes through a lot of the bits and pieces here that we would want to think about. But the key thing I want to highlight from his blog post is that the last thing he mentions is who is the operator. And we've become so obsessed recently about who it is who puts the piece of plastic in the patient's throat that I think sometimes we've forgotten all of the other key bits that really make a difference to whether patients can be intubated, given a rapid sequence induction in the emergency department safely. And that's the bit for me that we need to learn. That's the bit that requires the teamwork. That's the bit that needs the higher level thinking. That's the bit that needs the knowledge of physiology. The bit about putting the plastic tube in the throat, well, it's just a physical action, isn't it? It's monkey see, monkey do. And I'm not trying to compare our anaesthetic colleagues to, to, to primates. What I'm trying to say is that that is the final step of what is a complex series of decisions that need to be taken and actions that need to be had. So the first thing that Dan talks about when you're thinking about trying to make an intubation and an induction of anaesthesia in the recess room as safe as possible, he talks about avoiding cardiovascular instability. We're about to give drugs here that mess around with the physiology of the patient. They take away their total peripheral resistance, perhaps. They may affect other aspects of the cardiovascular system. And we've got to plan ahead for those. So how are we going to plan ahead? And we've heard a lot of talk about the zero point survey. We've done this for in Southampton as part of our trauma team for many years. This is what we call a, a, our team briefing. The zero point survey just takes that a little bit step further. And this is about a shared mental model. I'm trying not to use those buzzwords because I kind of despise them myself, but a shared model of what we're all doing, <clears throat> not being too proud to admit that sometimes we need to talk things through. We need to agree where stuff is. We can't anticipate which drawer things are in. We need to be sure we know where everything is. So the first thing we're going to do before we approach any of these is we're going to make a plan and we're going to have a plan B as well. And this has got to have start with avoiding cardiovascular instability. So how are we going to do that? What are we going to do to make sure the patient maintains their cardiac output so they can perfuse their brain? The poor students at medical school in Southampton who are coming through with the acute care module at the moment have had me banging on about ATP. They look at me very strange, but I've decided that that's my job. I'm a facilitator of ATP production. That's what oxygenation is about, isn't it? That's about getting oxygen to the cells. Without ATP, stuff dies. And if stuff dies, it stops working. And if stuff stops working, well, our patients die. So we have to make sure the patient has got a cardiac output and they're able to maintain that oxygenation of all of those vital cells so they can make their ATP. I promise not to mention it again for those of you who are getting those mild flashbacks to first year biochemistry at medical school or even back to A-levels in your sixth form. But we need to think ahead, don't we? So we've got to think, are we going to need to give this patient some fluid before we start? Do they need a vasopressor? Would it be helpful if we put an arterial line in so that we can get that invasive monitoring so we know exactly what's happening with their blood pressure? We're not guessing related on a non-invasive blood pressure cuff that may or may not work, that may or may not be on the arm that we're trying to give our drugs through, that may mean that we've put it on pause or whatever might have happened. So start with a checklist, think about what we're going to do and start with, can we make sure that their heart and their cardiovascular system is working? Now, the second thing about our ATP is that we need to have oxygen. So we've got to avoid hypoxia. So we've got to make sure we've pre-oxygenated our patient, make sure that they've got plenty of oxygen in. Now, for me, the final stage of this, as in the giving the drugs and putting the tube down, is very much the end. That is the bit that is the crux of the procedure, but we need to make sure the preparation is good. Often our patient can keep 
oxygenating and getting rid of carbon dioxide while we prepare these things. It's very rare that we have the so-called crash induction, that one where it's so desperate we have to do it right away. They're urgent. You've got to get on with it. But if you do it effectively, this will only take a few minutes to prepare. So we need to make sure they've got adequate oxygenation. How are we going to do that? Well, we can use our high flow oxygen. We can make sure that they've had a significant time of pre-oxygenation. It may be that we put nasal cannula in. So we've got some extra oxygenation going in with that so-called apneic oxygenation. It certainly won't do any harm as long as it doesn't delay you in what you're doing next. But we need to make sure we've got that cardiovascular system working and that oxygenation. And now comes that last bit, that making sure the tube gets down between the outside world and past the larynx and into the, that trachea so that we can make sure we can continue the oxygenation so that we don't put the heart under more strain by it not having oxygen for it to make its ATP. And there's lots we can think about and it's almost Christmas. So I'm not going to delve into who should be putting the tube down. But my main point here is that it's not the big deal. The big deal is the rest. It's that shared model. It's making those decisions as a team. It's working together with the anaesthetic department, with your ODPs, with your nursing staff, with you as a team leader, perhaps, to work out who is going to manage which bit and making sure that you're all sharing those things out loud. Never just say, oh, it's over to anaesthetics now. They're doing that bit. We can work together as a team. Can I help you? Is there anything else that you need? Are you comfortable that you know where everything is that you need? And you work together to make sure that that can happen. So that's the talk that Dan gave. And this is all about us growing and developing, isn't it? And as a pre-hospital emergency physician, I see this more and more, both in the pre-hospital environment and in hospital, where we can work together to make sure that this is safe. And I am an advocate for checklists. I really don't think they take long. I think it takes a certain amount of humility to say, I can't remember this. I don't remember all of this stuff. I'm going to need a little checklist to help me along. And even though I've done quite a few procedures, I still use checklists for the ones that I find stressful. And I still use checklists for transfers to make sure that they're safe. So that's a little bit of airway management. Next, Simon did a review of a paper that came from the Journal of Acute Care Surgery just in November about the use of pigtail catheters in haemothorax. So we're all used to that idea that a patient's got blood in their chest following trauma and we make the decision that we need the blood to come out. So we give them some sedation, perhaps, and we put a load of local anaesthetic in. We put a massive pipe in through the outside from the outside world into their pleural space. And these things are big. And then we have that thing about having to do some sorts of suture to hold it in. And, and you're thinking to myself, my goodness, this is a big thing. Well, this group here in a single center in the US decided that instead of doing big, you know, 28, 32, even bigger French drains for haemothorax, they would compare that with a 14 gauge pigtail catheter. Now, the pigtail is very similar to the Seldinger drains that we will have used in the UK. The pigtails I haven't seen in the UK as much, but all they do is they, well, they are what they say. They curl round at the end. So when you pull your wire out, they curl round. And that, I guess, is the idea that you're not then sticking the slightly pointy end of that plastic tube anywhere near those big things that sit in the chest. Here, what they did was a non-inferiority trial trying to compare the pigtail catheter with a large bore uh, intercostal chest drain, uh, one of the large sort of cardiothoracic style, let's call them. And they came to the conclusion that after looking at and analysing 119 patients of the 222 that they assessed for eligibility, there was no significant difference between the two. Now, this is a small group. These are using a piece of kit that we don't probably readily have available, but there's no reason why we couldn't get it. 
And there are downsides to those big drains that we put in. They really hurt. And in this trial, one of the secondary outcomes was pain. And not surprisingly, it's a big hole. Of course, it hurts more. And it may be harder to put in and it may need more to put in. So I think this is something to think about. But I know from my own centre that persuading a cardiothoracic surgeon that a smaller tube may be just as good as a bigger tube could be a bit of a trial and a bit of a mission. And in fact, we may need further trials to persuade ourselves and our colleagues that that is going to be okay. It's also worth noting that in this trial, they put the drains on um, a small amount of suction, 20 millimetres of mercury. And again, that's not something I routinely do in our recess room, but that's what they were doing here. So there are some differences that it's worth thinking about, but a topic for consideration. And Scott Weingart talked again on the excellent MCRIP podcast about this. It is now a subscribable podcast. And I would recommend that if you do have the funds available or you can maybe apply for it through study leave, you do get Scott's podcast if at all possible. It is a fount of knowledge. And of course, it would give you the access to the back catalogue. And I must say, I have no interest in this financially other than saying that Scott is a top bloke and uh, a lot of what he talks about is highly highly interesting and important to us. The final blog post this month was actually revisiting a a talk from the uh, smack in Dublin, which seems like forever ago in what we like to call the pre-COVID era, I think. And this is when Simon and Scott debated about whether emergency medicine is a failed paradigm. And I guess as we come to the end of our discussion of this month's podcast, it is worth thinking about just what's going on in our emergency departments at the moment. What is the place for emergency medicine in our healthcare system? When we are crowded, we are overrun with patients. We seemingly have a broader spectrum of patients coming to us than ever before. When I started, it used to be able to assume that if a patient came to an emergency department, they truly felt they were genuinely and possibly seriously unwell. But I'm not sure about you, but the patients we're seeing these days, their range of illness can be anything from very, very minor to the life-threatening, severe, I'm a farmer and I've only come in two days later because I'm a farmer kind of situation. So is emergency medicine a failed paradigm? Well, go back and watch the talk. It's still there. Two excellent speakers who it's always a joy to see. And we're thinking about, well, what is our place as emergency physicians, emergency nurses, pre-hospital care practitioners, intensive care doctors in our healthcare system, whichever country you're living in at the moment? Coronavirus has undoubtedly taken the wind out of our sails to some extent. It has very much hit us and we are now very tired. We've got the new Omicron variant and that is doing for us what I think psychologically it happened to us in whether the second or third wave that happened not long ago about this time last year but we have to keep going as emergency physicians and those who work in emergency departments and acute care we are doing good work and I must encourage you to keep smiling as best you can you will always be doing your best and your best is good enough even if you get home and you feel it isn't and just to point in the direction of Every now and again, have a listen to the back catalogue of the St. Emily's podcast. There may be some that you've missed. We're up to 190 something now. And yes, you can all look forward to a celebration of our 200th episode sometime in 2022. But there's great talks on there from Liz Crow about how we maintain ourselves, our well-being. There's also one on there about grief at Christmas, because there will be times in the next few weeks where we have patients who come in and we'll want to be wearing our reindeer antlers and our tinsel. and, And frankly, the patients we're seeing don't want to see that. So how do we deal with all of those things? So go back and have a listen. And now just a quick mention, because he's not here, so I can get away with talking a bit about Simon Carley. So Simon, while he's not here, just to mention, is the power behind St. Emlyn's. He would very rarely say it. He's a humble 
and giving man who I, I think has given as much to emergency medicine, both nationally and internationally, as, as anyone I've met, especially to the education of emergency physicians. He's the driving force behind St. Emlyn's. He is the one who encourages us to write podcasts, who writes the majority of them, who nudges me when there's a, a podcast that needs recording or a blog, blog post that needs writing. And so just a, a little, I think the kids call it a shout out to him. And as we get to the end of the year, a thank you to him for everything he's done for, to, towards St. Emlyn's. And I'm sure you would echo that. Uh, not least the fact that he's funded this out of his own pocket for almost a decade. And that's because of his belief in us and what we can do to help us get better at what we do and his belief in patients. Uh, I'm sure he won't ever listen to this podcast, so he won't need to be embarrassed by what I've just said. Uh, but we can all just say a thank you to him virtually right now. And as I come to the end of the podcast, I think this will be our last one before Christmas. And however you're celebrating the festive season in whichever country you're in, I hope you get some time with your friends and family. Uh, do wear your masks if your local uh, state or international legislation asks you to. We do think they do good. Do encourage your colleagues, friends, partners, relatives, anybody you can to get a booster vaccine. Yes, it is a little bit sore. And I have to admit, yes, I did feel tired for a bit, but now I feel protected. And I know that I'm protecting not just myself, but my children and my patients too. And our last thing, just as a Christmas present to us here at St. Emlyn's, if you do get chance, do rate and review us on whichever podcast provider you have. It gives us that little boost. And I'm sure Simon would be delighted to see some ratings from after this podcast, just because it does remind us that what we're doing is important and it reminds us that what we're doing is valuable and useful to you all. So there we are, a single podcast done without the main driver behind all this and frankly, the brains. I hope it's been useful. We've talked a bit about the power of narrative stories. We've talked a little bit about airway management. We've talked a bit about pigtail drains in traumatic hemothorax. And then just the idea about what is emergency medicine? Where are we taking it and what will happen next? Thank you so much for listening. It really is an absolute honour to talk to you every month and I can't wait to speak to you again in 2022 when I'm sure there'll be much more for us to talk about. Take care and whatever you're doing over the next few weeks, please have a peaceful, happy and joyous time and Merry Christmas to you all. Mm-hmm.